Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm your host, Chris Woolwin. So glad you're here to uh, reflect on God and His Word with me and to consider uh, paths to healing and wholeness. Um, That's what this show is about. So, join with me in the journey. Usually I have some light-hearted questions and trivia and and things to to begin the show with a a positive note. But again, uh, with so much pain going on in our country, I find that hard to do. And so I think we're just going to jump right into our subject matter, which is about um, how to change, how to bring about healing in a society and even in our own singular lives uh, when there is a great deal of pain and confusion and not only violence out in the public sector, but uh, a form of violence in social media as people begin attacking each other and and condemning each other and uh, threatening each other. It truly is amazing. I had made a remark uh, earlier on social media just how dangerous it seems to say anything. You know, if you say something kind, it's not kind enough. If you say you have a disagreement about how things are to be done, then you're really going to get slammed. Or someone has a different opinion and it doesn't fit into someone's narrative. It just uh, is a dangerous egg-shell-walking procedure, maneuver (laughs) in life. And uh, it's extraordinary to me that in a country that claims to be free and promotes freedom... Uh, when someone is not getting their freedom, the whole country shuts down the idea of freedom and actually demands that everyone speak one particular narrative. And that's rather confusing. It's kind of like being locked away in a pandemic uh, when there's so much uh, disagreement about what the cause is and, and how to address the cause. What a time of confusion for our country. So as uh, the topic of the show today is about uh, protest, you know, I've been reflecting on this through the scriptures over the last several weeks. When I first began thinking about what the Bible had to say, I immediately jumped to Jesus overturning the money changers tables. It wasn't a protest that he was leading. This was his own personal protest. When he had visited the temple early in his ministry, he saw that they, the people of Jerusalem during uh, a particularly crowded time in Jerusalem, usually during a holiday feast of some sort or even during the, the largest uh, celebration of all, Passover, people would turn the temple place into a market place. You know, kind of like a farmer's market. And the temple grounds was a very large uh, area. I mean, it probably in total, uh, it, it measured around, uh, 
you know, a, a football field in length and and a football, almost a football field in, in width. It was a huge marketing arena, and that doesn't even count the areas along either side of the temple grounds. It was called the Court of the Gentiles, and the idea was was that uh, the temple would be a place where people who were seeking God, including the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could come and and pray and and uh, learn about the God of of the Jews, the Creator, and learn not only about who He was and what He was like, but what the future held. It was to be a place of prayer. Jesus comes in, and they turned it into a marketplace. And He, being the Son of God, the Messiah, filled with uh, a zeal for His temple, and that it was to be a place of prayer on his own and in great anger overturns all the market uh, place tables, drives people out, he forms a whip, and he drives, drives the sellers out of the temple. Wow, talk about, talk about a protest. And then, of course, the leaders of the temple want to know what authority he has to do this. And, of course, he, he claims that authority as the Son of God, and he's fulfilling a prophecy out of Isaiah that the Messiah would, in fact, do such a thing. He would, there would be a zeal. And then in the end, near the end of his ministry, right near the end, nothing has changed. They're still doing the same thing, and he does it again. Nothing has changed in terms of his zeal, and he launches this protest again. So... Already that informs me that the idea of protest is a righteous one. I thought in the Old Testament of uh, Israel, following the reign of Solomon, who started out as a righteous king and then turned into a wicked king, and God's punishment was that there was going to be a great division uh, with his with Solomon's children and uh, uh, there's just going to be disharmony and disunity, and God began to to arrange such things. But it's interesting to me that uh, his son, Solomon's son Rehoboam, takes the throne at an early age, and uh, ten of the tribes of Israel actually, and it, you know, there's some debate. It could be including including a uh, Benjamin as well. Anyway, uh, these tribes come down to anoint and and go through the uh, celebration of anointing Rehoboam as king. But at the same time, they are uh, making a plea that uh, this new king, Rehoboam, would lighten the load of uh, because, you know, almost all of Israel under Solomon worked for the kingdom. I mean, if there was ever a, a uh, public, <laughs> a public uh, uh, economy, this was it. You know, private enterprise was very small. Solomon had employed almost all of Israel to build uh, not just Jerusalem, but store cities and, and create the magnificence that was Israel, okay? But it demanded a lot 
from the people. And the people were thinking, now that we've done this, could we now return to our own businesses, develop our own private enterprises now that the the business was done? And when they when they proffered this idea to Rehoboam, he consults his father's advisors, and the father's advisors say, yes, listen to them. This is a good thing. It's okay. Well, Rehoboam didn't like that idea, consulted his friends, and they said, no, make the workload three times as heavy as your father. And that's what he did. And Israel protested by walking out of Rehoboam's reign, kingship. They formed their own nation. There was a civil war that began in the heart right there. And this form of protest divided the kingdom between what we typically would call the ten northern kingdoms and then the two southern, or ten northern tribes, I should say, and the two and the uh, two southern uh, tribes, Judah and Benjamin, would form the nation of what would be typically called Judah. So you had Judah and Israel. But anyway, I just I wanted you to see that uh, the idea of protest was even occurring in in the Old Testament. Upon further reflection, there were individual protests. I think of four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had been captured as exiles from Israel. Uh, when Israel was being overrun by the kingdom of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And, uh, of course, if you're familiar with the story, and I'm assuming you are, uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar on a couple of occasions demanded that people worship his statue or uh, honor Nebuchadnezzar as a god or you know, something along that line. I, you know, I don't have the story in front of me, okay? But the protest, Daniel had his own protest, and the, the three uh, guys had their own protest, okay? And, uh, uh, and they, they levied it at the risk of their own lives. You know, I remember the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We will not bend down and bow down to your statue, King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, we will. We believe our God will uh, rescue us if you throw us into the fire. They had this great big, I guess you would, would almost call it a pit, a massive pit, uh, where for punishment Nebuchadnezzar commanded that these three boys be thrown into if they would not bow down uh, to Nebuchadnezzar's statue. They refused, and they said, you know, God would rescue them, but even if God didn't rescue them, know full well we are not bowing down. What a protest that was. And it was a protest from their heart, and Daniel did the same thing on a couple of occasions. Um, but the most familiar one, of course, was uh, the lion's den. Uh, with King Darius and so forth. But I just wanted you to see there's that kind of protest. I thought of the Apostle Paul. I don't have all the linear events uh, before me. You know, I'm just uh, 
this is a radio show, so you just kind of call things to mind the best that you can. At least that's that's my approach. I just want you to see uh, that, I, not that I don't do preparation, but that this is a time of reflection. It's not really a, a Bible study. And I was thinking of Paul demanding to see Caesar. You know, he had been in prison for two years. Anyway, he's. I think he's in Caesarea, in a prison in Caesarea, uh, Philippi, if I'm not mistaken, and um, uh, one king has treated him bad and thrown him into prison because the the king wants uh, some money. You know, essentially, uh, I'll set you free if you play my game. But uh, Paul refused, stays in prison for two years. Uh, uh, leadership, governorship changes hands. And the new governor comes in, wants to clean his docket, considers setting Paul free. But Paul knows that if he's sent to Jerusalem for freedom, the the Jews there will kill him because he has become a Christian, you know, a very bright light uh, for Christianity. And so he demands to see Caesar because he's a Roman citizen. And now Rome is required to send him to Caesar because of their laws. But this was a form of protest of Paul. So I just wanted us to see that the idea of protest against unrighteousness, the idea of protest in order to create justice, is a real thing. It's a righteous thing. And Christians shouldn't be uh, squeamish about participating in things that are a voice for right and righteousness. I can't under-express that at all. This needs to be expressed fully and completely. I have to tell you that I detest what's going on in this protest movement because, as expected, I suppose, because of the brokenness of people's lives and the sin in the world, there are those who are using and abusing the pain of people for their own gain, for their own agendas, for the purpose of a greater corruption. And I detest that. And I think the scriptures and God detests that. We can see the voice of God through all the prophets. Every time there was an injustice, every time, uh, well, he spoke often of the justice he was bringing through, through nations and through people groups upon the sin of Israel. But then when that uh, tool, like for instance, Babylon was a tool for God's justice, Moab was a tool for God's justice. But then, corruption uh, turned uh, these tools of these nations, because of their own corrupted desires, began to abuse people and uh, create all kinds of uh, injustice. Well, then God addresses that. I just want you to see that God is fully against injustice, crime, unrighteousness and evil at every juncture. But that does not mean to say that the idea of protest is also a bad thing. It's, it's not. It's a very 
good thing. It's a needed thing, even as we saw Jesus protesting unrighteousness. You know, someone asked me, is there a way to fix what's going on? What's, what's God's answer? And it seemed often that when I began to express answers, as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, no matter what you say and no matter what words you use, it's the wrong, it's the wrong statement and the wrong word. <laughs> and so it makes it a little dangerous in today's environment. If you're going to protest, expect to be cut off at the knees, even if your protest is righteousness, even if your solution uh, is expressing what, what God is expressing. Expect to be cut off at the knees or punched in the face, you know, slapped across the head, whatever, okay? Expect that. But as I was reflecting on what is, what is the answer from the Scriptures, it's easy to say the word love. Love is the answer. There's, there's no question about that. But how is love expressed? We might pray. We might uh, communicate empathy. And I think all those ideas are good. You know, loving a person, one person at a time. And there are many, many more ideas. I was thinking that there needed to be a greater amount of communication, that we need to talk with each other, maybe form groups in our own neighborhood where we can talk about, think about our own attitudes, adjust those when we see uh, racial misunderstanding, racial attitudes that are not pleasing to the Lord in our own heart, those need to be addressed. In other words, the problem might begin with ourselves first and addressing those and making adjustments where needed, not assuming immediately that we're not racist. You know, I might be wrong, but I think every single person on the face of the planet has some kind of racial bigotry. I call it groupism. We... You know, it doesn't have to be about race. It can be about anything. But the tendency of a broken humanity because of sin is to always create groups where we recognize our differences first and foremost before we recognize what, what makes us alike. I think that's one of the primary problems of sin is, is just that. We tend to separate ourselves into groups. But that being said, beginning with ourselves, assuming that there is some attitude that is not pure and perfect, we're not God. We're commanded to begin thinking like God, to grow into the image of Christ, to develop his wisdom and understanding, and that begins with us. Assuming that we're not perfect like the Lord is perfect, where are we imperfect? And being humble enough to look at ourselves, that's critical. And then, finding ways to express love. And oftentimes, if we express love, beginning with ourselves, it does start in small ways. Loving one another. Of course, when I suggested that, it was saying, yes, but that's not enough. <laughs> 
That's not enough. And when you think of bigger ways to love, I was thinking of things that, you know, Christians have been known to do when there are problems in society. Christians begin to organize and they create organizations for health care. Christians in the past have built hospitals and orphanages to address these kinds of issues. Christians build schools for education when there isn't a school. Christians in history have been known to be the initiators in society when society was breaking down. So my thoughts are, yeah, we need, we need ways that we can create education, building healthy community and work relationships. Christians could begin writing books, writing journals, developing journals to address some of these things. If someone is a victim or a group of people are victims of racism, find out how we could shower them with love, with outrageous kinds of love to show them how valued they are. There are lots of things that we can do. We could even uh, involve ourselves in government. Working for change, that is, creating consequences for those who are creating divisions in our society that develop unhealthy, unloving attitudes. Now, I know we can't legislate love. We cannot legislate the heart. And when I have suggested ideas of education and so forth, of course I got criticized for it not being enough. Okay? Well, and, and I'm sure you know this. Maybe you've run into this. In today's volatile, opinionated environment, whatever you say is never enough. Whatever you do is never enough. It, it's, it's, it's the idea of more, 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 more. Okay? Well, that was the problem in the Garden of Eden. Satan tells Adam and Eve, you can have so much more. You need to want more. God is not enough. What God has provided is not enough. So, of course, Adam and Eve bite into the fruit of all that and discover, oh, all they are left with is more, more, more. This longing in their heart. There is no contentment at all. There is no peace. So we see that pattern working itself out today. This is, this is why, you know, this, this idea of you creating a utopian society is something that will never happen because of the sinful condition of mankind. But that does not mean we sit back in our easy chair and not fight for righteousness. Jesus didn't stay on the throne in heaven. He comes into planet Earth and begins speaking of a kingdom where righteousness does reign. Now, you need to notice something, that when Jesus comes in to town and people are guessing and wondering if he's the Messiah, and eventually they figure out that he is claiming to be the Messiah, well, they're pretty upset with him. And why are they upset with him? Because in their minds, over the many centuries of reflecting on the, the scriptures that we you call the Old Testament, 
reflecting on what the prophets said about the Messiah's kingdom, they fully embraced and believed that when the Messiah would come, he would destroy Rome, maybe even take up his throne in Rome or in the temple in Jerusalem and establish a brand new kingdom, not realizing that the kingdom that God wants to establish is a kingdom built up of people whose hearts are kindred with God, a kingdom not of this world, a kingdom that was going to be built for a new place, a new era, a new age. And boy, were they disappointed, the people of the Jews, absolutely disappointed. And this created a division between the message of Jesus and the message of the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the leaders. They began to realize, oh, this Messiah is not going to build a kingdom on this planet in this time. His is a kingdom that cannot be seen except by those who have faith. Those who devote their lives to God, they will see the kingdom. But it will grow right under the noses of those who want to build a kingdom here on earth. But that means, and I I think the implications of that, folks, is that we need to see that God is not interested in building a utopian society here on earth. No, that perfect society is is in the age to come, in what we would call heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, where this old creation is redeemed, just like our, our bodies will be redeemed into new bodies. Everything is going to be redeemed. This is just but the seeds of something new that is coming. So that... Being said, that does not mean that I sit back and do nothing. Jesus did not sit back and do nothing. He came into this world to tell people about another kingdom. And how did he do it? By demonstrating works of love, works of righteousness, fighting for justice with compassion and mercy. I think of the individual ways Jesus protested what people did, protested the way the world operated. In fact, when you really look at the message of Jesus, it is an outrageous protest every day. Every day he's protesting what the world has done to uh, the innocent and to victims. And so he's healing with God's power, bringing life and newness, But along with the message, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and God will take care of all of your needs. That was God's message. God was not about restoring Jerusalem and he was not about restoring the Roman Empire. He was about restoring the human heart. I think about uh, when, when Jesus healed the blind man in John chapter 9. This man wasn't even asking to be healed. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the interesting part of this story. But he's been blind from birth. And Jesus heals him and you know teaches about, teaches about the, the kingdom. And 
and goes on his way. Well, the leaders of the day, the Pharisees and and so forth, they're kind of upset about this because Jesus has broken the law. He brought healing to someone on the Sabbath day. And that's simply not acceptable. And so the Pharisees, they grab this blind man, they bring him into the temple on the Sabbath day. You think when everybody should be home and resting, right? Not doing any work. <laughs> this is It's always interesting to me that, uh, you know, the... The leaders of the Jewish people are the ones doing the most work on the Sabbath. That's always ironic to me. They want everybody else not to do any work, but they do lots of work. But there, there you go. So they bring uh, the blind man in, and uh, they want to know who healed him. And the blind man says, I- I'm, I'm not sure. But I know that, uh, he says, I know that I was blind from birth, and now I see and uh, he gets into this big debate, and, and then eventually the leaders call in the family, and they want to uh, uh, find out from the family if this, is, if this is their son. And of course, the family is absolutely nervous. It's Sabbath. They feel like they're in trouble, and they probably are in trouble, because if they express any kind of gratitude for their son being healed, because of this man Jesus, who they hate and despise, then they will be kicked out of worshiping the temple. I mean, there's a lot of threat for their own lives, both the uh, the blind man and his parents. Well, Jesus gets wind, probably, presumably, from one of the disciples, that uh, the blind man is being grilled by the the temple priests. So Jesus makes a U-turn, comes back and looks for the blind man and affirms to him who he is and that he is uh, the Messiah. And, uh, And there are some Pharisees that are accompanying the blind man. And so Jesus then launches a protest against these Pharisees who claim that they see, and Jesus declares that they're blind. But the blind man, who was blind, saw Jesus and could see. I just think that's a marvelous, marvelous story of protest. So where do we go from from here with all of this? What what is the message for for us from the from the scriptures? Well, I just, I just want us to see that there are different ways that we can love people. And we can love people one-on-one, as I've mentioned. And we can be involved in, in a protest, either with friends. But, but to, not, to not be squeamish about this, particularly uh, from a Christian perspective. But to be aware that the world will always corrupt those kinds of protests. They tried to corrupt the protests of Jesus, corrupt the protests of the apostles, and, uh, and they will try to corrupt your protest. It will seem as if the things that you are looking for, the desires of the kingdom that you want to promote, won't be enough. But I want to remind us, when Jesus loved people, number one, He knew that it was going to 
change the world for that one person. And when Jesus healed, say the blind man, or healed someone from leprosy, the whole life of Jesus was a protest against sin. And that should encourage us. Because if we are not only in His image, but also being transformed into the image of Christ, that is, obtaining or receiving or yielding our lives to the very qualities of the fruits of the Spirit in our own lives, which are the fruits of God's nature, that is, the qualities of God are to be ours because of our connection with God through the Spirit. That we should begin living out these little protests and sometimes big protests. Jesus started with 12 disciples, okay? And of course, a whole litany of followers, including many, many women involved in his ministry. But everything they were doing, they were protesting the problems of the world, the sin of the world, the lostness and confusion of the world. Really, they were protesting the darkness of the world. And folks, this world is pretty dark. Your community where you live is pretty dark. And yet Paul, uh, sorry, Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You're the light of the world. But did God make us a light? Did God fill us with light in order to hide under a bush? No. Don't hide under a bush. Let your light shine so that it may be seen by people and they may glorify the Father in heaven. That's really the encouragement I have for us today. To keep living a life of love. To cleanse our hearts from attitudes that will not be found in heaven. That's really important, folks. Do you think that there's going to be racial attitudes in heaven? I don't think so. And you know, when problems come upon our society or upon our lives, these are moments where God gets to see what's in our heart, and you and I, we get to see what's in our heart. These times of purification and testing are, are indeed purification and testing to see where we are, where we need to improve. When something like this happens in our world, I know what I did. I began to check my own attitudes. I began to check what it is that I'm saying and doing. But I also recognize that in my own ways to teach, to cause reflection, to trigger, you know, thought... I found myself doing a lot of the things Jesus was doing. Jesus told stories that were offensive. They weren't very empathetic. <laughs> they, weren't, they didn't appear very loving. But he was trying to make a point about the pro, what, the, what the real problem is and what the real solution is. And so I would encourage us as believers... Be aware, number one, that when you open your mouth, someone is going to attempt to shut it. They're going to do it in the name of their own kind of righteousness. But we open our mouth in the name of the Lord. We show love in the name of the Lord. It may get criticized for not being enough. Keep doing it. Jesus was criticized for not doing enough. 
They wanted their whole world changed. They wanted the Messiah. Even the disciples were disappointed in Jesus because he wasn't going to do their agenda. Because what Jesus does, what God does, never moves fast enough. You may have noticed that God is never in a hurry. God sees the beginning from the end. He knows exactly what, uh, what's going on. And he's the one directing traffic. It may seem like the world is directing traffic. Mark my words. God knows exactly what's going on. He really is the one who directs traffic. And his is not about fixing the world. His is about fixing human hearts. And so with compassion, he moves into people who are, you know, the, the woman caught in adultery. The world was going to kill her. Jesus steps in and says, I don't condemn you. And in his own way, he protects her and moves all those with stones and sticks, right? They end up dropping their stones and sticks and walking away. God has his ways. And then God protests in the temple. And you know what he was protesting? He was more than just protesting the abuse of God's house. He was protesting that people are not crying out to God. When, when are people going to pray to God? When are people going to ask for God's help? You see, we often ask ourselves, where is God in all this? Why isn't God stopping this? Why is God allowing the violence? Well, the answer is, but we may not always like the answer. The answer is, yeah, the world is a very cold place. And Jesus says the love of many will grow cold with the implication of will grow colder. The world is going to get harder, more violent, more terrible and more mean. That's going to happen. But the message is, this is why we need to love others. This is, this is why we need to stand in the gap. Because God is about rescuing people's hearts for the kingdom. His is not about changing this world. His is about changing the world of every single individual. Letting them see that this place is falling apart, but his kingdom, the kingdom that he is building, is one that is a righteous kingdom. Now, if you're looking for righteousness in the church, it should be found there, shouldn't it? The church should exemplify that. Isn't it interesting, though? All the division we find in the church, all the hatred, all the groupings. Yeah, that's there too, isn't it? It's unfortunate, and yet the Bible is pretty clear. The church isn't about who is in your church building. I mean, in other words, you can't identify who the church is by looking at who is in your sanctuary. The church is made up of fully devoted followers of God. Many of them are in, are in your church or in your church community, but some are not. Some are wolves in sheep's clothing. That's the reality. That's the problem, isn't it? The world has problems, but there is a solution, and it is in Jesus Christ. And the encouragement then is to keep doing what Jesus did. 
carry on the ministry of love in small ways, person by person, and in big ways, affecting society, calling for justice, doing things that educate, creating consequences in government for those who are punishing people, and then discerning those who are abusing the system for their own agenda. How often did Jesus address the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the whole group of priests that had taken over the people of Israel? They were bad shepherds. They were hypocrites. They were taking God's commands and warping them to their own agenda and binding burdens too heavy to bear on the backs of widows and orphans and upon the people, all for the sake of money, all for the sake of control and power. You see, Jesus is not unaware of what's going on here. Jesus is about building a new people, a new people. A new society, but not a society here on this earth. A society for the future. So these are some things for reflection for us. I know that I'm reflecting and praying in each of these arenas, and uh, I hope you are too. Stay near to the Lord. Thank you for joining us this afternoon, and we will speak with you next time. God bless you. In Jesus' name.